Ann and I were newlyweds and serving in youth ministry in Singapore for a year. And there was a couple in our church. His name was Dave from the U.S. and Nellie, a young local girl, who met in Bible study in our church and started showing interest in each other and began to pray together and ask the pastor to work with them in preparation and exploring the possibility of marrying. So... As they were preparing and they were sitting down with uh, our pastor, Fred, and asking him, you know, what do we do? Nellie had actually never seen a Christian wedding. She was the only believer in her family. And so they're walking through the wedding ceremony and Fred's explaining to them the different pieces of the ceremony and they plan this beautiful ceremony that included... A lot of references to God and Jesus and His love for us because uh, we knew that there would be a lot of people in the wedding that weren't that weren't Christians. Well, as it got close, right down to the last few weeks, Nellie had realized how many of her family were actually going to come to the wedding. And she, again, the only believer in her family, so she was expecting dozens of loved ones to be in church, and she knew none of them had ever been inside of a church before. She was trying to witness to them, but she was seeing this as an opportunity, so she asked Fred. Fred, after right after the ceremony, when you pronounce this man and wife, would you present the gospel to the audience, and then would you give an invitation? And Fred, even though he was Meg a really good missionary, he said to her, "We don't we don't do that at weddings. We don't give invitations. It's about you and getting married." And she said, "No, that you just don't know. My aunts and uncles and my cousins and my and you know my siblings are going to be there, and they don't know anything about Christ. I want you to explain the gospel to them." Tell them about what Christ has done for them and and then ask them to believe right there. Fred, again, Nellie, you just don't understand. We just don't do it that way in church. Well, Nellie persisted. And so on that day, beautiful wedding. Beautiful, beautiful wedding. And yes, Fred read Scripture, talked about God's love. We sang songs about God's love in the service. He did the ceremony, pronounced the man and wife. And then, and, and we, we had been talking to Fred about this all along, Ann and I watched the great discomfort in his face when he said, and ladies and gentlemen, we have one other thing we need to do today. And so he very briefly uh, began to share the gospel, and he said, in just a few minutes, I'm going to actually invite any of you who want to trust Jesus Christ for the very first time. He says, I know this is really unusual, but, but you know, the, the bride has really insisted that we do this, and he's given all of these apologies. And before he could even get back and really explain the gospel like he intended... Nellie's uncle, Francis Chan, sitting right back, about eight rows back on the right side, stood up. He just stood. 
He had been told there was going to be an opportunity to come forward and accept Jesus Christ. And so he said, and Fred is looking at him thinking, I think Fred is thinking, maybe he's about to leave, I've offended him. And Fred shares a little bit more of the gospel and then says, if there's anyone here who would like to receive Jesus Christ. And before he could even finish the invitation, Francis worked out of his pew past several people and almost ran to the front. The very first time he had ever heard that God loved him. And it touched something in his heart that he'd been looking for all of his life. His very first time in a church. First time to hear the gospel. And before Fred could even finish... Before he actually finished the invitation, Francis wouldn't wait. He jumped the gun. And he ran down to the front as if Fred was going to cut off the invitation before he got down there. I don't know. (laughs) Ann and I had the privilege to see a man completely transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. With so much joy, he was at church every week, in Bible study every week, because he found out the most revolutionary fact in the world, that the God who created us loves us, and He wants us to know Him and to have salvation. Today we look at a passage in Acts, the 10th chapter. And it is sort of like that story, but even greater in a couple of ways. First of all, it's about a revolution. There was a revolution that happened in Francis Chan's life. And Francis jumped the gun to get there. This story is about a revolution too. Because up until this point in the book of Acts, the gospel has really not broken out to the nations. Jerusalem has a large church. The Jews from all over the world who come there have taken the gospel back to their homes. The gospel is spreading worldwide among Jewish people and it's even now spilled over into Samaria who who are really ethnically and culturally half-brothers, very close to the Jews. But we saw in, you saw earlier in Acts 1.8 that Jesus says that this gospel is going to go, this testimony is going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to all the nations. It hasn't begun to go to all the nations yet. And so all the way from Acts 1, all the way through chapter 9, we're waiting. We're waiting. When is it going to get to the nations But something had to happen first, and it was a revolution. Because it appears that all of those believers that we read about in those first few chapters, they're all Jewish believers. They, They come out of a Jewish background. They're faithful to the Old Testament law. And now they see in Jesus the fulfillment of their dream for a Messiah. And now they become Jewish Christians. And it appears that their assumption was that you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. That was natural. Jesus didn't say that. They just assumed it. All the other 
Christians they knew were Jews, so wouldn't it make sense that anyone who wanted to be a Christian could become a Jew and then they could become a Christian? That was not God's intention. And so in this 10th chapter, we have this story that I find to be absolutely amazing. It's a story of two men who could not be more dissimilar. It's the story of Cornelius and a story about Peter. Now, Cornelius is Roman and Peter is a Jew. Politically, Cornelius is an imperialist occupier. He is only there to make sure that the commands and the laws of Caesar are carried out by the Jewish people and to tax them and send those, that wealth back to support the emperor. That's quite different from Peter, who was one of those occupied, one of the defeated. Cornelius comes from a pagan background. He's probably been involved in the emperor cult as a as a centurion and a high-level Roman officer. Uh, he has stood there while prayers were being made to Caesar himself and who knows what other gods. And Peter is a Jew and a Christian. Culturally, they could not be further apart. Peter, this small-town, backwards Jewish boy, Cornelius cosmopolitan, educated, had seen the world, and very different cultural values that he comes from. What in the world could these two men have in common? It seems unbelievable that they would even be mentioned in the same chapter. Beginning with the verse 1, it tells us that this story begins in Caesarea. Well, the name would make Cornelius proud and Peter angry. The name of a city in Israel named after Caesar? Named after a vicious Roman ruler? The seat of Roman power? And in that city lived a man named Cornelius, who was a centurion, Yes, he was a military commander of at least a hundred, perhaps more. A high-ranking officer in the very army that had been placed there to keep control of the Jews. And he was even in the Italian regiment, of all things, representing Italy itself. Cornelius is the epitome of a Roman, a powerful, wealthy educated, Roman. He's all of those things. But we're also told Cornelius was a devout man. He prayed to the God of the Jews. Don't know how he got that interest. Don't know where he heard about this. But he prayed and believed in the God of the Jews. He had not become a Jew. He's still a Roman. He's still outside the system. But he's praying to this Jehovah, this God of the Jews, and he's actually doing acts of kindness to Jewish people to show his fear of God. And we're told that at three o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius 
had a vision and an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And he said to him, Cornelius. And Cornelius answered as if it were to another military officer. What is it, Lord? What do you want from me? And he's told, your devotion to God has gone up as a prayer to the Lord Himself. And so, He's sending you a message. You are to send someone to Joppa. Oh, just a small city 30 miles south of Caesarea. And in Joppa, you're going to send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. And he's staying with another Simon, who's a tanner, and he lives right by, his house is right by the seaside. Now, isn't it, I love, I love history. I love the fact that in that one statement, there's so many historical specifics. Simon called Peter, staying with another man named Simon who lives in Joppa and his house is right by the sea. How would these three sent ones find him? Well, with those specifics, they could find him quite easily. Just walk along that seaside in the city and ask, is there a man named Simon who's a tanner? And when you get there, ask him, is there a man named Simon Peter staying with you? So... Cornelius accepts this as a word from God Himself. He gathers two of His household servants and, it says, a devout soldier. One of His personal attendants, probably. Who knew of His love and fear of God and, it appears, probably had joined in somehow. And He sent them to Joppa. It's probably a two-day walk to get there. And we're told that when those three men came close to the city of Joppa, Simon was up on the roof. It's lunchtime. Food's not ready. I don't know. When you're hungry and it's time to eat, what do you do? I don't know. Did you go up there and walk around? He went up there, he was praying, maybe he was cooling off with the sea breezes. The house is right on the ocean, sea breezes coming off. It's noon, it's time to eat. He's hungry, the food's not ready. And he had a vision. No, not in and out. (laughs) Not a burrito, not your favorite pizza, no. Actually... That he would have a vision was not probably that surprising to Peter, but what was in the vision was an absolute shock to him. Because it looked like a big sheet or blanket was lowering down from heaven. Like a tablecloth. Maybe it's lunch. And it's coming down right in front of him. And when he can see what's on top of it, he looks and there on that cloth are all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds. Now, I don't know if there were any clean animals on the sheet, but there were certainly a lot of unclean animals. Now, Simon is a good Jew. 
Kosher living is not just rules. It's a way of life. It's a way of looking at the world and at what you eat. And those things had been, he had learned and been taught from very early in his life that these are things we don't eat. Do you remember your mother slapping your hand when you were two or three? Say, no, we don't eat that. My mother had to do that a lot to me out in the yard. No, don't pick that up and put it in your mouth. And so we internalize these things. This is not just, oh, here are all these foods I've always wanted to eat and God told us not to. No, these are things that would turn your stomach to even think. Things like camels. The Jews didn't eat camels. Things like rabbit. Things like pork. And all kinds of reptiles. I I always want to know, what kind of reptiles? What were they? Lizards? Turtles? Snakes? And then all these birds. There are all these things there. They're all the things that he had been taught and all of his life had lived. We don't eat that. And a voice came out of heaven and said to him, Peter, get up. Kill and eat. What do you think he was thinking? I think he was thinking, Lord, this if this is an exam, this is too easy. We don't eat that stuff. We don't eat that stuff. And even though I'm hungry, I'm not tempted. We don't eat that stuff. It's not clean. We don't like that kind of food. So he says, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat. I've never eaten this kind of food. And then God spoke to him again. And he said, what God has made clean, you must not consider to be unclean. Now, that's a shock. Didn't the Old Testament law teach us these things are unclean? Peter must have been thinking, Lord, what are you talking about? I'm only quoting back to you what's in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy. It's all laid out. These are the animals we shouldn't eat. They're not clean. That same process, that same vision happened three times. Three times. Why? Because he didn't get it the first time. The call came in. Just didn't get it. Didn't get it. Three times God answered this way. Do not consider to be unclean something that I've made clean. And he's there on top of the roof by himself now pondering this whole experience, thinking, God, what in the world are you trying to tell me? When he heard a knock out on the gate just outside the house. And those three men who've now walked up and down far enough and asked enough people, where does Simon the Tanner live? They're there, they're knocking on the front gate, And they're asking, hey, is there a guy named Simon Peter here? 
Now, they may not could see him and he might not could see them because he's up on the roof, but they're yelling into the house from outside. He heard the whole thing. And so he goes down and he welcomes them. And they begin to tell him why they've come. It's interesting that the account of Cornelius's vision is actually given four times in these in this story four times because Luke wants us to realize that the only way what was about to happen is that God had given a specific miraculous message and it's the only explanation for what happened Peter surprisingly invites them in to spend the night. The two servants, that might not have been a big deal, but one of them is a Roman soldier. You're inviting a Roman soldier into the house? Our enemy. Our enemy. He invited them in, and then the next day Peter went with them. Walked, probably the two days walk, to Caesarea. And before they even got to the home of Cornelius, probably because he had guards out on the road, one has come, and Cornelius knows that they're getting close to the house, and he's gone and he's gathered. All of his family and friends and neighbors, we don't know how many, but there's a large group of people. His house is packed with people. And Peter comes. And Cornelius tells him the story again. Don't be mad at me for doing this. I know it seems crazy. I'm a Roman officer and you're a Jewish fisherman. But guess what? Four days ago, I was just praying and God gave me a vision. What? I mean, what do I do? When you get a vision, what do you do? So I'm just doing what God said. <laughs> he didn't know. Peter had to have one too and his came three times. And so Peter begins to tell them the message. Now this is Simon Peter. He arrives and he's supposed to give a message. What's he going to talk about? Politics? The weather? Peter only knows one message. And it's the story of Jesus. It's the only thing he's got. So he begins. Would you read what he tells to this home filled with these Romans? Beginning in verse 34, Peter lays out a beautiful summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. Then Peter began to speak. In truth, I understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears Him and does righteousness is acceptable to Him. He sent the message to the sons of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That's a slightly politically incorrect statement to give to a Roman officer. That Jesus is Lord of all. There in, in Roman law, there's a Lord of all, and it is not... Jesus Christ, it is the person the city's named for. He's Lord of all. Peter, Peter gives it to him straight. 
You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how He went about doing good and curing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with them. Yes. Would a Roman officer know that story? Yes. It was a security issue. They were following every day. They were getting daily reports. Yes, there's that crazy John the Baptist out there in the wilderness. And now there's this other one, this Jesus of Nazareth, who thousands of people are following Him, and they're all crying out that He's going to be the Messiah, the King, the King of Israel. Oh my goodness, every Roman officer knew that story. Cornelius knew that story. We ourselves are witnesses of everything He did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And then the next shocking statement from Peter. Yet they killed Him by hanging Him on a tree. God sent Him and He did the work of God in the power of God and they killed Him. Who killed Him? Him. The Jewish leaders and the Romans. He doesn't say you Romans killed him, but when he says they, Cornelius knows. He knows. He's most likely friends with the men who did it. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, witnesses appointed beforehand by God, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So even though you killed him, God raised him to life, and we were there and we saw it. We ate and we drank with him. He's alive! And God has now appointed him to be the judge of the living and the dead. He is Lord of all. And he commanded us to proclaim this to everyone. And to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God, killed by the Romans, appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. This is a foolish but compelling story. It's crazy. Does it make sense politically from a Roman perspective? It doesn't even make sense religiously from a Jewish perspective. This was God's surprise to the world. That this was how He was going to offer salvation to us and to all the nations. And it is both repelling and compelling. It's shocking and it's revolutionary. And before Peter could finish his sermon, if you read this bit of the sermon, I'm going to say it's about three minutes. And my guess is Peter had more to say than that. He wasn't through. 
He wasn't through. But he had told them who Jesus was, and he had told them that we get this salvation in Jesus by simply becoming believers. And so before the invitation, the whole household believed. The whole household. Cornelius, his family, his friends, probably his neighbors, maybe some more of those servants and devout soldiers that are probably there inside the household with him. There's a large number of people there. And before Peter could finish... The sermon, they believed. And when they believed, they began to speak in other languages. Now that's a specific sign for Peter and six Jewish friends who are there to see this thing. This is the exact same sign that takes place in Acts the second chapter. And it's only taken place a couple of times in history where those who believed actually began to proclaim the grace of God in other languages that people could understand. That wasn't a sign necessarily for the Romans in the house. That was a sign for the Jews so that they knew for certain that these Romans were now their brothers and sisters in Christ. Can your political and military enemies be your brothers and sisters in Christ? People you hate all of your life be your brothers and sisters in Christ? How could this be that they could just believe so quickly even before the sermon's over and God give them this sign, this irrefutable sign that He has accepted them as part of the family just as He accepted the Jews? For you see, at this moment, Peter and his friends realized for the first time they don't have to become Jews first. The only thing that you have to become to find the salvation in Jesus Christ is a believer. It's the only thing. You don't have to become a good person first. You don't have to become an American first. You don't have to become a Democrat first. You don't have to become a Republican first. You don't have to live in Marin County. You don't have to do any of those things. There's only one thing you must become. A simple believer that Jesus is the Savior. It's as simple as that. And this actually resulted in a revolution. Cornelius, a commander in the Italian regiment of the Legion of Rome, was baptized and confessed his faith that a crucified criminal was not only just, but the Savior of the world and the Lord of all. That's that, and it's, this is a public event. There are too many people in the household. They didn't keep this a secret. Cornelius courageously said, Yes, 
I believe and I follow this Jesus. And that word must have swept through the whole legion in Israel overnight. A centurion? A commander of the Roman army? And Peter also became a revolutionary. Now, I have to say, Peter comes along with his feet dragging. He sees this miraculous sign that these people have been accepted by God Himself and the Holy Spirit has been placed in their hearts. And his response is not, Oh boy, goody, I've been waiting for this. He goes, Well, I mean, what can we do? Uh, can we deny them water? they got to be baptized. And so they baptize them. And then immediately word gets back to the church and they're immediately upset. You did what? And they call Peter in and the first thing they accuse him of, you went into the home of uncircumcised Gentiles and you fellowshiped and ate with them? How dare you? Peter says, well, I got this vision. It came three times. And they showed up and I just went with them. And then before I could even finish explaining the gospel, they believed and they were, got, they were given the same miraculous sign as who he was. What could I do? It's not my fault. And it wasn't. A revolution occurred because at this point, friends, it is clear that the gospel is for all of us. I don't have to become something else first. Don't have to fix my life first. Don't have to become a Jew and give up bacon and ham first. God accepts me where I am and He extends grace to each of us. That's a revolution. Is it a revolution that you've experienced yet? Because this revolution changes your life. It changes your eternity. And you can come to church, but until this revolution happens in your heart, when you say, I believe and I trust, then you're God's. You belong to Him. And His salvation belongs to you. So the first application of this story is, my friends, we must believe. And if you've not believed before today, don't leave this place until you decide, I believe. I believe it's true. It's crazy. Isn't it? Let's admit it. The gospel is crazy. Seems crazy. It's true. And I stake my life on it. Cornelius did. He probably paid a price. That would be my guess. We don't know. My guess, he paid a price. He didn't care. He had longed for peace and joy in his life and to know God in a personal way for years. And now it was offered to him freely in Jesus. And he took it. If you haven't taken that chance before today, take it now. 
Believe. Believe. For those of us who already have been revolutionized by the grace of God, we need to tell it. Peter's dragging his feet. He didn't want to be there. He didn't even like these people. It's amazing when you see God reach out to someone and transform somebody that you would have thought if you were making your list, well, not that one. Not, not that kind of person. I recently uh, visited a church that in Southern California that was all uh, mostly bikers. They're still bikers. And they're all ex-addicts. The whole church. I, I felt a little withdrawn while I was with them. Tough guys. And I mean, they love Jesus. It's amazing. Because somebody told them. They told them. And they believed. They believed. And folks, we are coming to this season of the year where we are raising money to support our missionaries around the world. They're all across those nations Jesus told His church to take the witness to. And yes, we can give, and yes, we can support, and we can be a part of what they're doing, if we will. I believe that would honor the same God who gave Cornelius a vision, and Peter a clear vision three times, that His love extends to all, if we'll only believe. Praise His name. Praise His name. Hey, it's Thanksgiving this week. Have you noticed? What are we thankful for? Oh, there's so many things. Ann and I are here. We're thankful for rain. We live in Southern California now. We're, we're glad to see it. Realize that it still happens sometimes. But the main thing that we're thankful for is... That in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our unworthiness, God proved His love to us while we were still sinners. And Christ died for us. May His name be praised. May His name be lifted up in thanksgiving by us this week. May those we know here, not only that we're thankful, but who we're thankful to. And may the nations have the same opportunity to hear that you and I have had. We're going to stand in a minute and sing a hymn of commitment. It really is a commitment. It should be a commitment every time we do it. We're singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And you may be thinking, oh, I decided that a long time ago. Well, decide to do it this week. How about that? We have to decide every day. Will I obey Him and follow Him? And there may be someone here today, maybe you've even been coming to church for a while, but you know right now in your heart that you've never done what Cornelius and his friends did. You've never said, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I believe you. I accept you. Would you do that today?
Would you decide to follow Jesus? I invite you to come forward and pray with us if you want. Or you can do it right there as we sing. Let's stand together and sing. I have decided.